I find that there's a variety of stories that you can cover beyond a lot of the sort of the the maybe stereotypical ones, you know, sled dog racing. That's what people know about outside of Alaska, you know, maybe oil or just the winter. There's so many things to cover here that I think most people don't know a fraction of. Hi, and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we salute and talk to Wesley Early. Wesley is a reporter for Alaska Public Media covering city government and Anchorage life and is a graduate of the University of Alaska Anchorage. Hey, Wesley, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for, uh, for inviting me on. So let's start where we always start with people at the beginning, and this can be an early part of your life. This can be wherever you want to start it. What's your journalism origin story? Yeah, I, I don't know that I think of it as like an origin story, but I, or maybe I've just never thought of it that way. But I, I look back at when I was in high school, and I used to ride the bus to school, and there would be these moments where... I, someone would get off the bus and I would find myself hung up on like thinking about, I wonder what their house looks like. Uh, I wonder what their mom is like. I wonder if they have any siblings. I wonder what they're going to have for dinner. And I don't know, like, I, I was just really, really fascinated by that, really curious. And I, I think that that was kind of like the first, the first inkling into, into me thinking I could be a journalist. And I kind of kicked it around as a career path, I wasn't super serious about anything career-wise. I wasn't really thinking about that in high school. But I think that as I got into college, I picked journalism as like the the crossroads of a lot of my interests. And each passing year in college made me made me more comfortable with making that decision. Can you explain where you grew up? Yeah. So I uh, my dad works for the Department of Defense, and so I was actually born overseas in England. And I lived in Germany and Australia. And then when I was four, we moved to Maryland. Uh, I lived there till I was about seven. Then I moved to San Antonio, Texas. And then I moved to Anchorage when I was 13. And I've lived in Alaska ever since. That, that actually uh, lends me to, to this. Uh, is there, what, what's the appeal of, what was the appeal of Alaska to young you that kept you there? Yeah, I think uh, I didn't have much choice in the matter coming to Alaska. <laughs> But in fact, my dad actually pulled an April Fool's joke a week, a year before we actually moved to Alaska with like some fake paperwork from the government, like that, that suggested we were going to Alaska. So when he told me a year later, we were moving, I was like, yeah, okay, thank, okay, dad, you can't pull the same trick on me. But, but we ended up moving to Alaska. Honestly, I think that I was looking for a lot of opportunities elsewhere when I was in high school, just because I think I had this this idea that Alaska wouldn't have as many opportunities for what I wanted to do. And so I thought I would move to a bigger city and I'd be able to sort of do more. There'd be more to do, more to see. And then I had a really great opportunity to basically go to college for free. I got a couple scholarships through the university and then my mom worked for the university. So I got a tuition waiver. Um, and so it was, it was just a great financial decision to stay here for college and especially if after all the horror stories that I'd heard of people having to pay massive amounts of student loan debt and then I kind of had the idea okay well I'll finish college in Alaska but I'll be looking for jobs elsewhere 
And then my last semester of college, I interned at Alaska Public Media. And about halfway through, they offered me a job, like right after I graduated. And it was kind of like, I don't know that I would get as good a job right out of college anywhere else. It was kind of like, this was the best first step I could take. And every time I constantly was thinking, maybe outside of Alaska, there would be something for me. A new opportunity kept coming up and enough time passed and I became so familiar with Alaska, largely through reporting. I think that as a reporter, I really started to, to, to learn more about where I was from and, and find this sort of this, this interest that, or interest isn't the right word, but this, this stuff that kind of kept me learning so much about my state and I felt such a deep personal connection to it that now I have no intention of leaving. So your career path has taken you to a number of different parts of the state, both large, relatively speaking, and small, relatively speaking. Can you walk us through your career path? Sure. So uh, like I mentioned, I was an intern at Alaska Public Media, and then I got hired to be a web editor. So I was in charge of basically copy editing and putting out our content on our website. And then I produced the nightly news program. And then I became an education reporter in addition to those first two duties, kind of as my career went on. And after about three years at Alaska Public Media, I was really looking for an opportunity to be like a full-time reporter. I didn't, I didn't necessarily want most of my job to have to do with other people's work. I wanted, not that there's anything wrong with that. It was just, I had this sort of desire to be a reporter and a position opened up in Kotzebue, Alaska which is in the Northwest part of the state. And they hadn't had a news director in about 10 years at a KOTZ. And so I, I applied for the job and I got it. I, I moved up there in September of 2019, because it was about six months before the pandemic hit that I was living in Kotzebue. And then I, I was up there for a big chunk of the, the worst part of the pandemic. And then I, I came back to Anchorage last September, so in September of 2021, or actually August, but I started back at the radio station in September of last year. And uh, and now I cover, I'm a full-time reporter in Anchorage, and I cover mainly city government, but also sort of odd stories here and there having to do with Anchorage. A few weeks ago, I believe you tweeted something, or maybe it was a retweet that said something to the effect of, your local public radio station is not NPR. It's it's (laughs) separate things. So with that in mind, can you explain what Alaska Public Media does? Right. So Alaska Public Media is what's called a dual licensee. So we're a nonprofit news source, and we are both a PBS affiliate, so public television, and an NPR affiliate. So we're a member station of NPR, so we air NPR programming. And then we also air programming from American Public Media, which is based in the Midwest, and we air sort of various public radio programming. We have our own local public radio programming. And every now and then we contribute to NPR. I've, I've done a couple new spots for NPR. And then, but we have a totally separate newsroom. And in a lot of ways, we're, it's more of a collaborative relationship when, when we cross over with NPR. So we, we pitch them stories that we think could have national interest. And they they decide whether or not they think it's of natural interest, and then their editors work with our reporters. We're, we're sort of encouraged to, to pitch to national programs if we think that something we're reporting locally could have a bigger angle or could have a bigger reach. But 
but we're like a separate newsroom that airs NPR programming. NPR is based in DC. They've got their whole hierarchy of news. We have our separate reporters. And there's a big print component to your job too, right? Not. Nah, I guess rephrase. Is, we have our website too, yep. and so we we get our we get our news out that way. Although I will say, sometimes the local newspaper picks up some of our stories. So yeah, we are in print sometimes. Now that I think about it. Sure. Well, I just I just meant like a written component. Right. Yeah. I mean, all of my stories that air on the radio. They also, we, we put them up on our website. Sure. So, all right. What's a day in the life like? Well, my day starts at like 6.30 in the morning. My fiance works at a, at a child development center. And so her shift starts at 7.30 and we have one vehicle. So I drive her to work at about 7.30. When I get home, I'm normally like eight o'clock around when I'm checking my first emails, I'm checking some local news sources, uh, whether it's us the local TV station, the local newspaper, um, just to see if there's anything major that I've missed over the and to see what stories are out there broadly. I'm checking my emails and then looking at the, the city municipal calendar uh, to see what committee meetings are happening. I cover, I try to be at every municipal assembly meeting just in person. I think it's good that there's a reporter at every one of these meetings just so you know, we can know what's going on, even if it's, even if there's nothing we're going to report on, it gives us like a sense of what people are talking about. Some days I have a set interview at like 11 or something, and I go to the interview and I have a quick turnaround. Some days I'm working on longer term stories. So each day can kind of change, but it normally starts with me just running down a checklist of like all of these calendars and emails and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of, I wouldn't say not fun stuff, but definitely the, the, Nitty gritty. The nitty gritty part. Sure. So let's, all right, let's look at a couple of recent examples of stories that you've done. I'm just going to read through a list here. One, the purchase of a hotel being turned into low-income housing for formerly homeless people. I noticed you shot the photo for that story too. The Mm -hmm. auditing of a city health director and a profile of Karen Lomack, who is painting rocks to raise awareness for fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome awareness. How do you come up with your ideas? Well, what's funny about the profile of Karen is I actually interviewed her like a year ago and during September because that's a fetal fetal alcohol spectrum disorder awareness month. And so a group, an advocacy group had reached out to our newsroom and I thought, oh yeah, this could be a nice story. And I interviewed Karen and we went on a walk where she, she had painted all of these rocks with information about, about where to learn more about FASD. And I was all set to do a profile and do a story, but simultaneously at the city level, I was covering several subsequent meetings that had public testimony over a proposed mask mandate. For the city, we were trying to, we had a pretty big COVID outbreak. And so the city was wrestling with the, having another mask mandate. And so I had to be at these nightly meetings regularly. They kept, they kept going on and scheduling new meetings. And so I, I ended up having to set Karen's story to the side. And by the time I like had the space and the sort of the, the, the energy to go back into it, the, I, f- I felt that the moment had passed, like it wasn't sort of newsworthy. And so I honestly felt guilty for a year <laughs> that I didn't do that story. And so August rolled around and I emailed them and said, hey, I basically want to do what I was supposed to do a year ago. Are you guys still interested? And they were super understanding. And I'm happy we were able to get the story out. But yeah, yeah. So that one, that one was like a year in the making, but that's not, that's not normal. 
I would say I get most of my story ideas from people email us with story pitches about things happening in the community. And we get a lot of emails and sometimes we decide if, some, if it's something that sort of fits within what we cover, if it's something that we think we could turn a radio story on and then have a web component. And then also we, because I go to city council meetings, a lot of my stories are on, or I should say assembly meetings. A lot of our stories are on what's on the agenda. What are stories that have been sort of garnering interest over the last few months? You know, what's drawing a lot of public testimony? What's a big purchase for the city? And uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I have one way that I, that I have to sort of select stories, but I think that a lot of it's community driven and sort of, we try to, we try to write a balance between, it's kind of like eating your vegetables and having dessert, right? Like the dessert is what a lot of people are talking about and what we think people are going to immediately be interested in. And the broccoli is like stuff we think people should know, and maybe they don't think, uh, maybe they're not thinking about it. And so it's kind of writing that fine balance. So with something like the Karen Lomax story, what's the process from like beginning to end? Is is it as simple as you go for a walk with her, you're taping the entire talk, you go back, you listen back, you edit, and then you write your script? What goes into it? Kind of. I mean, I did. I reached out to her. I picked a day that worked for her and a photographer because a photographer, Matt, uh, Matt Fabian, actually took those photos for that story. and. We basically did just walk around the block with her. I wasn't recording initially when I got there. I was kind of, and because I'd already interviewed Karen before and I knew a lot of, I knew a lot of what I wanted in the story. I just wanted the audio to be. And uh, so when we actually did the walk, what I told her was, I'm not specifically recording your voice. I'm recording sort of the, the, the background sound, the, the ambient sound of what it's like walking with you doing these rocks. We're just going to have like sort of conversations that, yeah, they'll be recorded, but it's not like the focus. And then when we got back to her office, that's when I did a sit down interview. And then, yeah, I went, I went back to my office. I think I produced it like a few days later. And actually, actually, I think it got bumped because of some other things, but I was, it didn't get so bumped that we had a repeat of the year before. <laughs> So you also cover the mayor's office intensely. I found online a 20-minute interview that you did with him in late July. What's the mayor of Anchorage like to cover? I think that the mayor, our mayor specifically, he doesn't have a lot of a lot of background in politics. He, he was kind of a he was an, a bit of a political outsider. Who he'd been involved in like local conservative circles, but he hadn't like run for office before. He's a former pilot, and so I think that. Talking to people who aren't used to being interviewed is always kind of gentle. You have to balance between like, this is somebody who's not used to being interviewed. So maybe you got to frame your questions differently. But also, this is the chief executive of the city. So you can't exactly just be easy on him. But I, he's, he's a guy who he's always been fairly gracious when I've spoken with him. When I did the interview, he was super, he was super nice and he answered my questions. I, it's hard to kind of balance between some, a lot of people will just sort of talk and talk and say sort of their, their, uh, their sort of slogans, sort of phrases that they've been using over and over. You can tell that certain things have been said over and over. And so you have to kind of be conscious of, of getting actual new usable information out of the mayor. Cause it's, I'm not recording a conversation with the mayor. I'm recording an interview, like I'm asking him questions and I'm trying to probe information out of him that maybe 
I think the people are interested in or maybe that the people haven't heard from. And so it's kind of writing that balance. But yeah, I, I, I think that my relationship with the mayor has been, I interview him he, or I reach out to his communications team. They give me statements regarding things I'm asking for or they don't. What are your favorite types of stories to cover? I find that there's sort of a balance in the type of stories that I do. Earlier on in my career, I tried to get really good at turning around really quick stories. So our newscast records at five. And so if there's like a press conference at three to 3.30, I, I had to sort of train myself to listen to this interview sort of actively, try to remember where the most important thing, look for sound bites as you're listening, like what sounds like something that sums up an idea of what they're saying and like be able to turn that around in like an hour. And so I, I got really good at that, but I had to sort of balance that with sort of telling longer form stories, stories that require a little more, a little more forethought. And I think that the best stories are where the best stories are ones that no one is necessarily covering and you, you don't feel sort of pressured to get something out quick. You, you understand that you are sort of taking a look at something that you don't think any other reporter is going to write about, at least recently. And so you have a little more, you have a little more room, but I think the best types of stories get away from like the, the newsmakers, so to speak, your politicians, your usual suspects in local political groups, the principals of schools. It gets away from those people and talks to like everyday people. I hate, I hate saying that because it's like that all of these people's opinions are valid necessarily, but getting away from like the people who we always hear from and hearing from people who have different perspectives, people who are actually experiencing the things that the people in charge are impacting. Hearing from people, hearing from people like Karen Lomack. Yeah. Yeah. I think Karen's somebody who, who certainly she's done outreach. And I think people who are familiar with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and outreach on that, they probably know who she is, but elevate in my work I think that you sort of elevate certain ideas and you have to make sure that like what you're elevating is is um is useful to somebody so one of the things that I wanted to do for this year for the podcast was I wanted to cover states that were distinct Hawaii Alaska Wyoming and I've now talked to reporters in all three what are some of the things that you cover that are like specific to Alaska and what makes covering something in Alaska somewhat unique? I think that would have been an easier question to answer when I was up in Kotzebue, which is above the Arctic Circle. So explain that then. Sure. I covered impacts to local subsistence, right? I think Alaska is, I want to say Alaska has the highest percentage of Indigenous people as part of its population. And I think absolutely has a higher percentage of like Indigenous representation just at the state, like around the state. And so it's kind of hard to be a reporter and not pay attention to sort of the issues of Indigenous people, specifically with things like tribal sovereignty and uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and uh, subsistence and all of the, and, and rural Alaska issues, because a lot of rural communities, they're not on the road system, right? Which is like Anchorage is on the road system. Fairbanks is on the road system. Wasilla, Kenai, Seward, you can drive there. 
but you really can only fly or boat into Kotzebue. And a lot of Alaska communities are like that. And so I think there are unique challenges where uh, just as a reporter, there are certain uh, challenges with internet access, being able to ship things, knowing when your Amazon package is going to show up, right? It's a lot easier in Anchorage than it is in Kotzebue. And it's a lot easier in California than it is in Anchorage. And so I think that Alaska is very, it's, it's very far from the rest of the country, both literally and kind of excessively. Uh, excessively. And so there are sort of differences there. Just yesterday, there was a story down in Gustavus, which is near Juneau, about this huge landslide that like knocked out all, like a lot of power in Juneau. Anchorage has earthquakes. Alaska has volcanoes and rainforest and the Arctic. Like that's how much of the world Alaska takes up. I find that there's a variety of stories that you can cover beyond a lot of the sort of the, the maybe stereotypical ones, you know, sled dog racing. That's what people know about outside of Alaska, you know, maybe oil or just the winter. There's so many things to cover here that I think most people don't know a fraction of. So one thing that we haven't talked about yet, you've talked about the experience of being in the past of being in Alaska and there not being a lot of people who look like you, you're black. How has that come into play in your reporting? I think that I've, I've, I've been aware of it for a while. And so I have to, I have to kind of like factor that into what our news room is covering. I don't think any person of color necessarily wants to be the representative for all black people, for example, right? I, I, I am not the representative for all black people, but I think that there are certainly things that I think about and that I'm, I'm maybe more, more sensitive to that I think warrant newsworthiness. Because you know, a lot of people forget that there's a certain bias in story selection, right? Like you can, you can tell a story very evenly and fairly and, and, and showing both sides. But like the fact that you chose to tell that story, that you chose to write about that, that's a bias, right? And so when we all live in our little bubbles, whether it's your, your background, your ethnic background, whether it's whether you're a man or a woman, you're gay or straight, maybe you're transgender, you were born fairly wealthy, you were born not particularly wealthy, all of those inform what we think is sort of important. An example for me is I did a story a few years ago about a unusually high number of Black people running for the Alaska legislature. I think it was like seven or eight. And that was kind of interesting. But the more interesting part was that most of them were running as Republicans which kind of runs counter to, I think, a lot of people's assumptions about where Black people tend to fall politically. And it's not just like stereotypes, it's actual like statistical data shows that Black people by and large tend to be more supportive of Democrats and like Black Republicans should represent like 0.5% of like the Alaska electorate, but they represented like 10% of the Republicans running for the legislature. and so. My initial curiosity to that, which I found out because of a local conservative, a local conservative group had sent out like a release basically saying more black Alaskans are running for the legislature than ever. And they're running as Republicans. And normally I skip most of those because it's often it's it's them trying to drum up support among their supporters. So it's not really I don't find a lot of news there. But I, I saw that claim and I kind of thought, is that true? 
that because that sounded kind of interesting. And what it ended up turning into a story about was what motivates people to run for office and where these sort of these I, I don't even want to call them secondary characteristics. These where certain characteristics fit in to somebody running for office, right? Like, are you leaning into the fact that you're black and you think that there should be more representation, or are you trying to sort of say, look, I know that I am black, but but I'm going to be a representative for all people. Or are you saying, I worked for Democrats, but it seemed like they were only focused on getting Black people out to vote, and they didn't seem concerned about actually getting Black people jobs, which is what I was hearing from the Republicans, and the one woman who I interviewed in that story. And so I got all of these perspectives. And also one of the most interesting parts of that story was I interviewed the head of the Republican Party at the time, and I asked him, does the Republican Party go out of their way to recruit diverse candidates? And he straight up told me no. <laughs> he said, we don't seek them out, but if diverse candidates show interest, maybe they come to their local district party meeting and they show interest and they want to get involved, we try to elevate them. And it, it was the type of statement that a very liberal person could listen to and think that their, their belief system was justified because they're like, see, Republicans don't actually care about diversity. They just, they're not reaching out. But you could also have a Republican go, well, no, look, we're elevating people who show interest. So I, it was the type of story where I don't know that, well, I know for a fact that it wouldn't have been covered because nobody else did a story about it. But I don't know that if I didn't have my own personal background and my own sort of my experiences, I don't know that I would have cared that much. So this segues right into my next question. Two, now, two years ago, you did an interview, another interview with a different podcast, SeaWorld Voices, which is an Alaska Anchorage podcast. You spoke at length about separating your political views from what you cover. So in a post-January 6th world, I'd like to ask about that one again. How do you separate your political views from what you cover? Well, I think that anybody who knows me personally knows how I feel about certain things politically. I don't, I don't try to go out of my way to be particularly politically vocal publicly just because A, uh, it's counterintuitive to my job and B, I think that there are people whose job it is, who, who are in a better position to do that than I am, right? My job is to very plainly seek the truth and report it and be accountable. And there are some people, and so where I fit in the sort of overarching system representative government and participation in the public process, it's a different position. And so I, I very much view that role. That's not to say that I'm not participating. I'm just participating in a very different way. And the purpose of my participation is different. And so if I'm talking with my friends at a bar, I will, uh, sometimes I'll describe my, my distaste for a certain political decision, but I, ultimately my goal is the truth, right? And so I, you can't be neutral about that, right? And some people talk about being like neutral towards everything when they're reporting, which I think is unrealistic. And I think that what you should strive to be is fair. So I live in a city where the head executive is a Republican and, and it's not a secret. Like he's very out, he's an out conservative, <laughs> so to speak. And if he were to do something that were against the law, I can't treat that politically neutral because he broke the law. And in the same way that I can't treat 
something from maybe one of our more liberal assembly members. I can't treat that neutrally, right? And so if a lot of stories seem like I'm criticizing the mayor or I'm pointing out something that the mayor's not doing, I try to take a step back and say, am I actually, am I being fair? But, you know, I'm, I am not in service to any particular political entity. I am not paid by these interest groups necessarily. There are groups that donate to Alaska Public Media. Some groups line certain places politically. I am not beholden to them. And I think that people appreciate us and people go to us because it's very clear that we we are independent. We 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 certainly personally have ideas about the world, and you know, I have personal ideas about civil rights, and that drives some of my reporting. And maybe I I would write about something because I think it's an issue. But as far as like separating my personal politics, I think that like we we use the term political very broadly, and I think that we have to be careful not to like, not to sort of be neutral about things that truly matter to us as like a society. I have two questions left. Are there miscons, you've, you've talked about Alaska from a number of different perspectives. The lower 48 perspective of Alaska, I imagine is a lot different from what Alaska actually is. Are there misconceptions about Alaska? I think you alluded to a couple of them that the media often have and share that it's important to clear up and that the media need to be cognizant of in the lower 48. I think uh, we, we uh, I mentioned talking about indigenous cultures earlier and how I think that any reporter worth their salt in Alaska should be aware of like how tribes work, how native corporations work, right? Because Alaska, with the exception of one community, doesn't have reservations. And a lot of people from the lower 48, when they think of Native Americans or they think, oh, well, reservations. It's like, nope, that's not quite how it works. We have corporate, we have regional native corporations, right? And they operate differently. They're for-profit businesses and their shareholders are people who are um, enrolled in the, the native corporation, right? But also we have tribes, we have tribal governments and which are federally recognized tribes are sovereign governments. And so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about about like just how indigenous cultures work. There's a lot of people, even Alaskans, who have this this misconception that like, oh, native people are just getting all of these things for free, which is super toxic. It's they are getting what they are owed through federal treaties, right? Like this is it's like saying you, oh, you got free money for working at your job. It's like, well, no, I I worked at the job and they gave me the money. It was transactional. And so that's one issue. And then I think Alaska, there's a certain truth to the idea that like we get paid to live here. We have the permanent fund dividend, which is which eligible Alaskans can receive. This year's amount was about $3,200 per Alaskan. So if you're a family of five, you get five checks. And I think there's this idea that like we get paid a lot of money to live in Alaska. And depending on how many people in your family, it's a bonus, but it's certainly no replacement for a salary. And uh, I think that Alaska is more modern than some people might might think. When I moved, now granted, I moved to Alaska before there was an IMAX theater. They actually built the first <laughs> IMAX theater across the street from my high school. But you know, it's got most things that you would have in a city. It's got sports arenas. It's got performance venues. It's got malls. It's got chain restaurants. 
it's 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 got a lot of what you would see in your average ordinary city it's just way less people but there are some differences because you may have to be careful because a bear got into a high school which happened to me a bear got into my high school one time it just like found its way in and like officers had to come by and like shush the bear out of the school so that there are certainly like wildlife encounters that are that are realistic but i think that alaska it's it's a different type of community than i think most people are used to because it is kind of a big small town uh anchorage has about like three hundred thousand people and it's the biggest city it's the biggest city in alaska and in fact next to new york city it has the highest percentage of a state's population in one city like anchorage New York City is the only state that has a higher percentage in one city. And so we are a lot more modern than some people might think. Cool. The, so the show is called The Journalism Salute, and we salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization, maybe someone that you can acquaint us with, that you would like to salute for their good work? I, I wish I read more like national news intently, so I could maybe highlight a national. There are a couple of national reporters I like reading. Taylor Lorenz is really great. I like McKenna Kelly with The Verge. They write really well about the over the overlap between like social media and like the rest of the world. But I think if I were to highlight an Alaska organization, KYUK, which is the public radio station in Bethel, Alaska, which is a Yupik community, Yupik community, they are like the gold standard for a local public radio station. Like they are because they not only Bethel is like the hub for like dozens of other villages and KYUK does a remarkable job of keeping tabs on so many different communities flying reporters out to these communities really being representable being representative of a very different part of America really and and it's a part of America that doesn't always have clean water doesn't have great infrastructure a part of the state that's trying to preserve certain culture. It's a part of the state that's been impacted by colonialism. And as a result, the standard of living isn't particularly high, but it's also a place where the people who live there feel so strongly about their community because it's like, it's in their blood, it's in them to to really shepherd this part of the state. And I think that KYUK, specifically their, their news director, Anna Rose MacArthur, I think that they do such a great job of just being like doing the work of journalists, which is to be representative of a community and really, really not only not only keeping their community informed, but like showing the rest of the state, the rest of the world, this community. And, And they they've aired national stories with NPR on different topics. They were doing a lot of work this past weekend with a really gnarly Western storm that came through. And so I, I can't say enough good things about KYUK. Sounds like you're doing that kind of work as well. Wesley Early, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your uh, future. We'll be keeping tabs. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. If you're looking for another podcast to explore, check out the Shifting Schools podcast. They've done several interviews with journalists. In episodes 226 and 229, they talk about data visualization and data journalism. The podcast itself focuses on the constantly changing education landscape. Find out more by heading over to shiftingschools.com. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. 
You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.